you need to appropriately push back on clients too and make sure it's a it's a partnership. We are doing what we can over the variables we have control of. You as a client also need to do your duty with the variables that you control. John Horn was just a reservoir of knowledge when it comes to advertising. In this episode, we talked extensively about pay-per-click, marketing agencies versus individuals, crypto payments, and the future of advertising. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you do too. Hello, is that John? It's John. Hey, Connor. How's it going? Yeah, really good. Just awesome. woke up. What time is it for you? It's probably about 8 a.m. All right. Cool. It is. What about uh, you? That's about one p.m. Cool. Where do we find you? I am in Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, whoa! Nice. Yeah. What's it like in Fort Worth? At the moment, it's beautiful. It's uh, probably seventies right now. Sunny. You know, in the twenties with ice on the ground a week ago. So it's a it's a pleasant. uh, It's a great great break from that. They say in Texas, if you don't like the weather, just wait five hours. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. My girlfriend's in Massachusetts, and it's kind of like that too. Yeah. Like eighties, and then it's snowing. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Well, thanks for coming and uh, nice to meet you. Yeah, you as well. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. I'll probably tell you, this is the first podcast I've done for the Beautify. I'm taking over from Joseph. Right. So yeah, I'm pretty excited. Very cool. Well, I'm glad to be the uh, the inaugural one, trying to make it a good experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. I'm sure it'll be great. Well, I mean, this is a question I ask everybody that I meet usually, and it's, uh, what do you like to do? I like to drive success for our clients. I love hearing from a client of oh, our sales are up like crazy. I've been able to hire new people, you know, so forth and so on because of the advertising we've been doing for them. That's very fulfilling. But then similarly, I love being able to facilitate that for our team members and bring on, bring on board people, give them a great job, a great paying job that helps them support their families and gives them a place where they can grow both career-wise and personally-wise and skill-wise. And I love you know, facilitating that for uh, for our team. So your team is Stub Group. That's right. Yep, Stub Group. We are a, a digital advertising agency. So what we focus on is helping businesses create and manage advertising campaigns online. Mostly, we're talking about the big platforms: Google, Facebook, Instagram, Microsoft, etc. And we're helping all kinds of different businesses just find and connect with customers online and drive ultimately drive up their their bottom line profits. What kind of advertising platforms do you work with? Yeah, so I'd say pay-per-click is kind of the the model that we're typically working with. And so that is uh, primarily Google. So let's say, you know, Google search certainly and Google shopping, as well as YouTube, Google's display network, so forth. They're the the 800 pound gorilla in the uh, in the space, paralleled by Facebook and Instagram, of course, with their uh, their massive audience as well. So serving ads to those platforms. And then outside of those platforms, you have, let's say, Microsoft Advertising with their Bing network. You have um, Amazon, where we work in the advertising space for clients. And then you also have things like TikTok, which is just burgeoning. No, I won't say burgeoning. It's already massive. But from an advertising perspective, definitely seeing a lot of advertisers figuring out how that platform works and um, how they can connect with audiences there and, uh, and so on. Okay. So I, I didn't realize that you guys work with everything. Do you tailor per business, per platform? Absolutely. Yeah. It's when a, when a business reaches out to us and looks for help with advertising, we bring them on board as a client. It's a process of understanding who are they, what makes them unique, you know, what is their differentiator, let's say, from other competitors, other people in the space, who is their target audience, where is their target audience spending their time? And how is their target audience making decisions about purchasing? Are they searching Google and seeing what the options are? Or are they you know, not even aware of the existence of the service or product? And so we need to go out there and find them through Facebook or Instagram or TikTok and say, hey, here's an awesome thing that you should, you know, that you should get. So it's a very, very tailored process to every client and their goals. Well, I want to say, do you have a threshold for clients? Like just for people coming in, is it small or big? Or We don't have any predefined thresholds. It's more of a factor of, do we think we can be successful for you? And so we work with a wide variety of businesses, both in terms of what they sell as well as size. So everything from small mom and pop shops up to publicly traded corporations. And so, you know, we might have a client come to us, maybe they're, they're a local business and they're like, Hey, we've got, you know, a thousand bucks a month to spend. Well, if, if we think we can drive positive ROI for them in their tight local area, because you know, there's people looking for their, their service and we can reach those people with that budget and we can make money for them, then absolutely we'll work with them. Or if we have somebody saying, hey, paying you know, 100K a month or 500K a month or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll obviously work with them as well. 
a little bit of change of topic, but if you're bringing on clients, do you have a limit of clients that you can handle or are you, are you kind of just scaling like mad? So there's definitely scaling, you know, has, has to happen. People can only work with so many clients at a given time and do well. So spend a lot of time and attention looking at the rate at which we're bringing new clients on board and therefore the rate at which we need to bring on board new experienced team members. And the approach that we take, and every agency has a different approach, and there's not really a right or wrong in that some will train from the ground up. They'll, they'll work with people who maybe don't have experience in advertising and, and train them in how to do advertising and build them up. And then some agencies will look for people who already have that experience and training and talent and bring them on board uh, you know, board with their team. That, that latter approach is more what we do. We look for people who already are really good at what they're doing. And then we bring them on board and then you know, are able to, to scale our services for our clients by scaling our team. I guess, is there any interesting clients that you've worked with or any sort of big mistakes that you've made with clients? So many interesting clients, yes, and you know certainly plenty of mistakes across the uh, across the lifetime of Step Group. Never going to pretend that we are we are perfect um, at our jobs, but I think when it comes to mistakes, kind of speaking to that point, um, secondly, it's really important when you make a mistake as an agency, a to recognize yes we've made a mistake and figure out what can we learn from it, obviously, so we don't repeat this mistake again. B be obvious, you know, not obvious. Be uh, be transparent with the client. Take ownership. If you made a mistake, say, "Yep, that that's on us." Don't try and you know, don't try and explain it away. Um, but at the same time, it's also important to not take blame for mistakes you didn't make, which frankly happens constantly in the agency world. Where maybe a client, what what I love is a client uh, says, "Hey, I want to do this type of campaign." You're like, "Well, I don't think that's going to be successful." Like, here's mm-hmm. here's the reasons why we should do it this way or, or not do this. And client says, "No." Now, I trust, trust my gut, go for it, do it. Like, okay, well, you're hiring us. We're going to give it the best chance of success. And then the campaign doesn't work well. And the client's like, well, yeah, this campaign didn't work well, guys. You messed it up. In those types of scenarios, you, know, you, you need to appropriately push back on clients too and make sure it's a, it's a partnership of, hey, we are doing what we can over the variables we have control of. You as a client also need to do what you, you know, do your duty with the variables that you control. And you're only going to see the success that you really want to see by us marrying those two things together and, and doing well together. Yep. Sounds like Marcus Aurelius. Uh, <laughs> stick to what you can control. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to ask what the benefit of an agency is. I know you're going to be pretty biased, but compared to an individual, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. No, plenty, of, plenty of bias here, certainly, since that's my, my bread and butter. This is something I've, I've talked about and, and done some writing about too, of kind of the idea of, of in-house versus agency. Why would you obviously make one choice or the other? And I think there are situations where it makes a lot of sense to have in-house people. And then there are situations where it makes sense to have an agency. Some of the benefits that come from the agency world are, A, you're getting exposure to what is working well across the marketplace. So if, if you're an in-house person, let's say you're, you're a, a business and you've hired one person to do your marketing, all that person's going to see is, is your data your market, you know, what maybe what your competitors are doing, but they're not going to see, oh, hey, this new strategy that's working well for this this industry, we can translate this over to this client. You know, they don't have the the breadth of access to client data and access to different strategies to be able to even test new things or see, oh, you know what? This thing is not working. Let's not waste our money on this because, you know, as an agency, we've tested it for five other clients who were open to that and it didn't pan out for them. So I think you have access working with an agency to just a lot more experience, a lot more options in how your own campaigns are going to be managed. Um, And then also you often have a lot more access to the platforms themselves. So for example, um, Stub Group, we're a premier Google partner, which means that we have a dedicated team at Google who helps us to support the advertising for our clients. Everything from getting into new betas to um, help with figuring out new campaign types of features to, you know, proactive conversations about, Hey, here's a client's goals. You know, how can you on the Google side, help us figure out how to better um, meet those goals and exceed those goals. So I think those are, those are some things. And then honestly, on the cost side too, sometimes it's cheaper to hire in house and sometimes it's cheaper to hire an agency, especially if you're kind of a medium sized business where it's like, okay, I could have a salary for an in-house person versus what I would pay to an agency. Often you're going to end up paying less to an agency because they're able to also amortize that cost across you know, a number of different clients and um, pass those cost savings on to you as a business. 
Yeah, those are some pretty solid points. So you mentioned you were a Google partner, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So Google, they have a, um, a program, it's called the Google Partner Program. And then actually uh, above that or component of that is what they call the Premier Google Partner Program, which is where Stub Group is up. And so essentially what that means, a, a Google Partner is typically an agency or company that manages Google advertising on behalf of other companies. And they get into Google's network based upon the amount of ad spend they're managing and a couple of different performance criteria that they need to hit. And that gives them you know, a badge and some credibility and, and some access to support uh, to some support on Google's end. Mm-hmm. And then Google looks at the very kind of cream de la cream of those Google partners and uh, picks out what they call premier Google partners, which are based on much more stringent levels of um, you know, best practices and client retention, um, ad spend being managed, other things like that. And those partners you know, get more credibility, obviously, by having that badge, but also more uh, support within Google, more proactive help in working on their clients. Awesome. Well, I was going to ask how you got there, but I guess lining out the, uh, the factors at play, it makes sense how you got there. But yeah. did, you, did you look at that and go, well, that's, one, that's something that we need? Um, so kind of fall into your lap? really something uh, we've had, I think, I want to say since 2016, really since the, the beginning of that premier partner program, we were kind of at that level back when they started rolling it out. And so we've been able to maintain it um, ever since, including they just did a whole big restructure of that organization in uh, well this month, beginning of this month. And uh, we were able to, to still maintain that, still kind of meet their thresholds, exceed those thresholds. So it's been it's a fun signal. To, to tell us that we're, we're doing well and that we're doing well for our clients you know, compared to the benchmarks that, that Google has for their agency partners. Yeah, it's a hell of a metric to be not, in, not only a partner of the biggest search engine in the world, but also in the creme de la creme. It's it definitely helpful on the sales side too because it, it gives, um, you know, gives credibility and gives some, some comfort to businesses. They, they don't have to just take our word to say, yeah, we know what we're doing. But we also have Google themselves saying, hey, we know what they're doing. And if we need to, you know, we could introduce a, a lead to our team at Google so they can ask them, you know, right out and say, hey, are these guys good at what they do? That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You've got this company, Stub Group. How did that come about? What, what led you to starting that company? So we're looking at probably close to a decade ago. And I actually personally wasn't uh, one of the founders. So there were two, two founders of the company who both came from a marketing background, business background, and um, both you know, friend, friends of mine, one of them actually my brother. And they were looking at the marketplace and seeing what are the needs right now, especially in the advertising and marketing space. What do businesses need and, and where are they going? What are the next 10, 20 years look like? And at that point, uh, pay-per-click marketing, Google, Facebook, et cetera, they were already you know, very, very big by that point. But there was such a market need as businesses switched over from traditional advertising to digital as new digital-only businesses build up. There was such a need for people who knew what they were doing in that space and could effectively steward ad spend on behalf of clients that they, you know, they identified, okay, this is where we want to go. And so it kind of took those marketing chops and you know, together we created a stub group as an agency and just really bootstrapped it, built it from the ground up in terms of bringing on board clients, figuring out what worked well for them, what didn't work well, growing over time, getting those partnership statuses and so forth with Google and Facebook and, uh, and growing to where we are today. Awesome. So walk me through that process. That's a whole 10-year block of your life. What was it like at the beginning compared to now? And were there any moments where you felt, oof, I've, I've made a doozy here? Or uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the whole entrepreneur's you know, journey graphic they have, basically the roller coaster up and down and up and down. Definitely yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely can, can relate to that. You, know, you have those seasons where it feels like everything is going wrong and campaigns aren't working for clients or you know clients are freaking out or whatever and you're in one of those slumps and then you'll get those wins of hey we did awesome for this client or hey we got this great new client on board and really it's a process of dealing with those slumps not getting too down dealing with those highs not thinking you're the best person in the world because you got to that high and just kind of being level headed and saying okay we're going to keep Keep working our way forward, you know, watching the numbers. Do we have the right trajectory over time? Are we going in the right area? Are our clients staying with us? Are they happy? And then also growing the team because in the agency world, really what we're what we're selling is the expertise of our people and certainly the tools and platforms they use. But it comes down to 
who are we putting in contact with the client? How do they grasp a client's business model? How can they work with the client to establish a good relationship and figure out how we can best help that client succeed? And so on you know, the leadership side of the subgroup, it's about finding those right people and figuring out how do you hire good team members? How do you figure out which team members are not going to be a good fit and move on from them you know, earlier rather than later? And that's, that's always a process of growth. Not going to pretend I figured it all out. It's uh, every day is always a learning experience. Yeah, that's actually probably one of my favorite topics is people. How do you bring people on? Do you sort of have a trial period? How do you how do you figure out kind of quickly and efficiently that they fit in with the culture? Yeah, we put a lot of time initially, certainly into the hiring process of talking with them, researching them. Um, we'll usually have kind of mock things for them to do, whether that's looking at client scenarios and writing example emails or building demo accounts things that help us understand how they analyze information, what their skill level is, um, you know, how they communicate with clients if they were to be put in that position. And we're able to weed out lots of candidates who aren't up to snuff, you know, there with our, with our policies or with our, um, our standards there. And then when we find good fits and say, Hey, you, you're a good fit, you know what you're doing. I think you're going to, you know, work well for our clients. Then we bring it on board, start working with them. And that's really where the, um, where the rubber hits the road, as they say, as you start to see how they engage with clients, how they work in the context of the agency, and trying to have um, processes in place for making sure they get the appropriate training, as well as making sure there's appropriate oversight so that we are doing a great job for our clients and that they're not, our clients cannot be ne- negatively impacted by those, by those team members coming on board. And then, like I mentioned earlier, you've got to you know, got to make decisions earlier rather than later. If you see things going south with an employee relationship and saying, "I don't think they're going to be a good fit," they're not doing well for our clients, or they're not being transparent with clients, or whatever the case may be, then you've got to be willing to make those hard decisions and say, "Hey, I'm sorry, we're not going to be a good fit for each other. We need to move on and you know, find someone else who's going to be a better fit." Who has somebody that you've hired, or maybe a group of people that have you know radically improved the business? whether you expected it or not. In terms of hiring, you know, the, primarily who we're looking to bring, bring on board are people who are obviously working with our, with our clients directly. And then you've got people who are there to help the agency grow and, and help us reach out to new clients and figure out um, how, to, you know, how to make that happen and grow as an agency. I can think of one, client, one hire on the uh, kind of the sales organizational side of things that we made in the last uh, one to two years who has been super instrumental in just coming on board and saying, okay, I understand what you're doing. I understand the culture. I understand the agency world and really helping to do a great job of communicating that to leads who are reaching out to us looking for help and uh, bringing them on board new clients. And uh, that person has has been a, a very significant asset to the company in, in that role. But then even separate from that role, just in terms of the type of people that have the biggest impact, I think, are the type of people who ultimately who care about their job, who don't just view it as, okay, it's nine to five, you know, I punch my time card, do my thing, and then move out. That doesn't really work in the agency world. And I'm not saying you have to work tons of extra hours, but I'm saying that you have to care of, okay, I'm going to do what needs to be done for this client. And I want to think creatively, think outside the box, the box, because that's what we're being hired to do is not just push buttons, but really understand their business and figure out how can we creatively, you know, using the the budget that they have to work with, figure out a way to turn those ad dollars into many more profit dollars. And that's the type of person that I'm always looking for in the hiring process. I know this is probably not what you expect to talk about your company's internals, but it's just interesting to me. So you've had the company going for 10 years. Did you like are you guys remote or do you have a little office somewhere? We used to have a physical location where probably 80, 90, 90% of our, of our team was physically located um, here in, in Texas, which is where I, I still am based at this point. But we made the decision to go fully remote uh, back. It was in parallel with COVID. It wasn't directly because of COVID. Uh, we were already planning to make that change, but that did kind of expedite the timeline of, you know what, let's do it now as opposed to six months from now. And we did that for a variety of reasons. But one of the biggest being, I want to work with the best talent wherever they are in the world. And with the way things work right now with our job, it's completely internet-based. Um, you know, our clients, we're not meeting in person with our clients. If a person's working in, in Boston or Utah or wherever, I want to be able to work with them 
and not uh, be limited to you know the talent pool here locally or to people who are willing to uproot their families and make that move. And so it's overall, you know, it's been it's been great going to that remote model. Okay, so uh, switching tack, probably something you're more interested in. You mentioned PPC earlier. Can you tell me about the history of PPC? When did it start to become more mainstream, and how do you how do you use it, and what is it? Yeah, so PPC as a model stands for pay per click, and it's really the the concept of showing an ad to someone and then paying when the person clicks on the ad when they engage with your ad. And it's been around as a model for for quite a while. I, I couldn't tell you the exact year that the model came out, but you know we're talking twenty plus years at this point. Certainly, um, Google, what is now called Google Ads, what used to be called Google AdWords, is one of the pioneers, certainly in pay per click as a model, and um, is still a massive, massive player in that space. You know, between Google and Facebook, they control the uh, the majority of ad spend that goes through that pay per click model, and the idea is with, let's say, a billboard, for example, you're going to pay X amount and have, hope as many eyeballs see it as possible. But with the advent of the internet and being able to actually, you know, people engage and go to a website and then take actions, it made much more sense to say, okay, well, I only want to pay when I get someone who comes to my website and have the opportunity to sell to them, as opposed to, hey, I, I served a banner ad on this page. Hopefully somebody saw it. Hopefully they read it. I don't really know. Why do I really want to pay for that? So that's where kind of that, that cost per click or uh, pay per click model came from, and is still used by you know most most platforms right now. As well as you got CPM, which stands for cost per thousand impressions. That that's used in some cases as, as well, especially if you're talking about more of a brand awareness campaign type, where your goal truly is just to get people to see see your ad. You don't necessarily need them to interact with it right now. If I'm a client. I've got a little video production company. So I come to you and um, I want to get maybe another 10 clients um, next next quarter. How do you really like hone in on that pay-per-click like mm-hmm. for each different client? It has to do firstly with understanding what are what are their goals. So what you did there is great. You gave a goal. Okay. So this is this is how you measure success. It's if we can get you 10 clients next quarter, for example. Next question is figuring out what is the value of clients to you? How much are you going to make from those clients? And what's kind of the lifetime value too? Because that's going to directly impact what you can afford to spend to acquire a, a customer or a client. Once we figured that out and have a sense for what a client can afford to, to pay to acquire a client, then it's about figuring out, okay, well, where who is your target audience? Where are they spending their time? Are they searching for you? Um, in the case of a video production company, a great place to be would be on Google search. Someone types in video production company. I'd love to come up for that search term. However, even that is probably going to be too broad because it's a big country. There's a lot of video production companies out there and a lot of ones that have you know massive budget to spend on Google ads, for example. So now it's about figuring out what is unique about your video production company? Is it that you're based locally? Is it that you're you're in Fort Worth, Texas? Okay, well, we should run campaigns focused specifically on that and messaging, talking about how you know, you're, you're local and you understand the community and testimonials from local companies, stuff like that. Or maybe it's, hey, we're really good at making videos for, um, for app developers to advertise their apps. Well, that's a niche. Then we're going to focus down on those types of keywords and that type of messaging. And through niching down and figuring out kind of where is that lowest hanging fruit, that's how we're going to most effectively use an advertising budget that we're given by a client to get those 10 clients for them next quarter. That low-hanging fruit, you know, is that a completely different search term to the first query of just video production company? It would be like local video production company or something like that. That's a that's a great question because sometimes yes and sometimes no. Sometimes there are differentiators in how people search. Maybe they're searching for um, you know, something something near me. So, for example, um, you can think of storage units. Um, people typically in that space search something like storage units near me. Something because because they want to go to the they want to they don't want to drive an hour obviously to storage unit. And they want to see what's in my area. But then you also have terms where people. They're going to search the same thing. They might they might not care about locale. They might search video production company, and they might actually care in their mind. Yeah, I want to see ones that are local to me, but maybe they don't search that way. 
um, because I just want to see, okay, what, what comes up when I type that in, which happens a lot nowadays too, because people know that Google is really good at surfacing local results to them. And so people don't always um, type everything that they're thinking because they know Google's really good at kind of figuring out what they're, what they're yeah. thinking. And so for those types of scenarios, sometimes you have to run the numbers and figure out are there things that we can do with maybe our ad copy to try and um, you know, discourage people from clicking and costing us money who we don't want to click on our ads because they're not relevant? A great example would be industries where I uh, would say they're B2B, um, but consumers might also search very similar search terms. And so you have to be very careful there. You don't want a bunch of, of consumers driving up your costs because they're searching the same keywords as businesses, but there are, you know, a hundred times more of them. And so all your budget goes to them. And so you might want to get creative in your ad copy to say things like, you know, for businesses only, or, you know, different qualifiers to try and, and, and add some context there. And then same thing on your landing pages that you send people to um, try and not flood your sales team with people who aren't relevant to what you're doing. So there's a lot of different strategies, I'd say on the targeting side, what keywords you choose, the ad copy side, the landing page side that you can do to try and position your clients for that lowest hanging fruit. So it's kind of like a lot more back and forth talking to you guys and trying to align what you're discovering with how your website's set up, for example. It's very much a partnership, yes, between, between us and the client. Um, our, our best clients, our best success stories are where the clients really are on board with that and they view us as an extension of their marketing department or as their marketing department for them. And we're able to get insights from them that we're never going to know on our own about their target audience, about their business. And then we are going to be able to leverage insights that we know from how to use marketing platforms and what's working well, what isn't working well, and marry those two things together. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty good business model. How much um, cut do you guys take? Or like, how does that finance work? Typically, you're looking at you know monthly retainer um, is kind of the model that we use, and then uh, percentage of ad spend as well, in addition to that. And so, you know, we have to know at least we're making X amount from each client, and then as the amount of money that we're uh, that we're managing for them scales, the work involved in managing that typically scales as well, and their success is scaling as well. And so that percentage of ad spend model kind of helps reward us and drive us value as we're driving that value to the client. And so those, what those numbers are exactly, you know, they're, they're going to be dependent upon different factors, how much ad spend we're, we're handling for a client, what different channels we're running for them, whether it's just Google or also Facebook or other platforms and things like that. But that's, that's kind of the general model that we approach or that we, that we take. Yeah, that's pretty fair. Okay. So just going back a little bit, I've never really wrapped my head around like bidding. So mm-hmm. Google search, we can change the example if you want. But I don't yeah. really, yeah, I don't, I just don't really understand how it works. It, um, it can get quite complicated. So I definitely, okay, understand. Fair. at its core, those platforms, um, taking Google search as an example, they have an auction. And so what that means is every time you type something into Google, let's say you want to buy an umbrella and you type buy umbrella into Google, well, behind the scenes, there's an auction that takes place right then. And all of the different advertisers who have indicated that they're interested in potentially showing an ad for someone who does that search are going to be a part of that auction. And then there's different factors that go into which of those advertisers actually win that auction and show up. One of those factors is how much they're willing to spend for the click. And there's lots of different ways to communicate that to Google. Sometimes it's just straight up saying, hey, I can, I'll spend up to X dollar amount per click. Sometimes it's more of an automated strategy where you're giving Google flexibility to make different decisions at auction time based upon the conversion rate or the conversion data that you're giving to Google and the target cost per conversion, for example, that you gave to Google. So there's a lot of different ways to come up with that bid. But ultimately, you've got bid is one aspect. And then other aspects are how relevant is your ad to the search term? So for example, mm. let's, let's say State Farm. They could tell Google, hey, I'm going to you know, pay you $200 per click for someone who searches by umbrella. And that may be way, way higher than someone who sells umbrellas is bidding. But Google's still probably not going to show that ad there because it's not a relevant ad to someone looking to buy an umbrella. And ultimately, Google cares most about relevance, about what's going to keep bringing people back to Google to use Google because they're getting the most relevant possible results. And so you know, State Farm, in that example, they would have a terrible what they call ad rank 
because they're just not relevant to that keyword, um, their, their service or their ad. Um, and so that plays into it. And then also even just the performance of your ads are, do you have a good, what they call click-through rate, which is just the percentage of people who are clicking the ads after seeing them. Well, if you have a great click-through rate, that's a signal to Google, again, that your ad is relevant and interesting to people. And so you're going to get a better ad rank for that ad because, um, because of that relevancy. And ultimately, Google likes making money. And so the more the more relevant ads you have, the more people click those ads and therefore the more money Google gets to make. Google's in it for the money, also in it for the relevance. That's kind of a cycle that feeds itself. But on our end, what we can do when we're, we're making decisions about bidding is A, figuring out what, we, what can we afford for to pay for traffic based upon the client's conversion rates and goals and so forth. But then also, what can we do when it comes to crafting very relevant ad copy and compelling ad copy that has a high click-through rate and things like that so that we can increase the client's ad rank and therefore decrease what they actually have to bid and pay for clicks to get that traffic to their website. Wow, thank you for that. Sorry, the State Farm example, can you just uh, give me a different example there? I I didn't quite get that. Yeah, totally. Um, In other words, like back, back in the very, very early days, let's say, of Google AdWords, you might have people who say, okay, I'm going to build on all the keywords out there and I just want my ad to show up kind of like a billboard. So, um, you know, let's, let's take an example of a local tree service and they want to get as many you know, clicks as possible on their ads. And they say, they're saying, okay, have really high bids. We will tell Google we'll, we'll afford it. We can afford to pay a lot for clicks from like any of these keywords. Google is, is going to look at that and say that tree service is in no way relevant to someone who wants to buy an umbrella. And we're not in the billboard, you know, we're not in the in the billboard space. If you want to buy a billboard, go buy a billboard or go get an ad on Google's display network to put on a website. But when someone searches buy umbrella on Google, Google wants to show ads that will help a person buy an umbrella, help them solve that, you know, solve that need. And so the ads that show up are going to be from Amazon or Walmart or, you know, whoever, whoever actually has ads relevant to buying an umbrella. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. The tree service company could match for terms like tree or like types of tree, mm-hmm. but people who want to cut down trees are like lost on that. And people who want to discover a kind of tree are lost on that too. It's yeah. Finding that middle ground where. Yeah. Find that middle exactly ground. And then also crafting the ad copy. So you might have a situation for a tree company, they'll have different ads for different intents. So you might have people who are searching, uh, you know, tree company. Well, boom. All right. I want our ad to talk about how we're a great tree company. We've been around since 1972, call for a free quote. But if someone's searching for, um, you know, uh, oak wilt, for example, well, that might still be very relevant to my company because they probably are going to have to cut down that tree at some point, but they're not yet to the point where they're searching for a tree company. Right now, they're researching to see what's wrong with my tree. And so it might be profitable for me to still answer that need and, and, and have an ad about here's how five ways to identify oak wilt, get them to the website, give them that information. And then you've got a captive audience to say, you know what, you need a tree company because your tree is you know wilting guess what? We're a tree company. And so you've got different levels of that funnel that we'll use for, you know, for clients to ultimately to, to hit their goals. It's amazing how much nuance there is. That's, that's uh, a lot quite, to it. Yeah, that's quite incredible. Yeah, thanks for that. So where do you think this is all going? Um, do, you, do you think that like, it's kind of like the placebo effect, you know, it dripped into the public consciousness at one time, and now people can react with and against that effect. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the public and people in general are just going to become more up to speed with how all of this works and, you know, the model will shift. Yes. Yes. To a large extent. I think you certainly have people have a better grasp now of how the online infrastructure, let's say of advertising and information works than they did um, in, in past years. Some of that comes from, there's a lot in the news right now about um, about big tech, about privacy issues, about you know, legislation um, against big tech, about monopolies, things like that. So it's a it's a very present topic. At the same time, a lot of people still really don't understand it, um, and they there's still people that they don't realize the difference between ads and organic listings on Google, even though there's a very clear you know ad label on H1. They're like, oh, I just, I click Google. Wait, what? That's not. Uh, so you, you have a, a very wide range, certainly of education 
in just you know normal people who are not in the advertising space of what they do or don't understand about how advertising works. And I think where I, th- I see things going right now, we're we're in a, an interesting time because privacy is very much a concern of consumers and of legislative bodies. And there is a lot on the technical side of things that's going right now with Google, with Facebook, with Apple, with other tech platforms, figuring out what they're going to be able to do moving forward when it comes to um, to tracking how people use the internet, um, tracking people who, who navigate through their products. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about you know, the iOS 14 updates that Apple came out with last year. And that's, that's had a, a significant impact, especially on Facebook and Instagram and some of the other social platforms. And it's, um, I think there's, there's a lot that will be decided upon in the next one to two years that will probably usher in kind of the new stage of how the internet works for a while. And I don't think the internet itself is going anywhere. Um, I think Web3, as they talk about it, um, is going to play a role in some people's lives, but I think it's going to be a long time before Web3. And I, I'm no Web3 expert, so please don't ask me to explain too much about, about it. But, <laughs> but from what I understand, you know, it's kind of the, the decentralization of the internet and like the next the next phase of of the internet. We're in 2.0 right now. I think there will there will be early adopters and some places where Web3 will be a, a very significant player. And then I think we'll still see a lot of the same infrastructure that we have right now for you know the next decade because it it takes a while for people to get used to something and then move on from that to the next thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It will be uh, broad and specific. One thing that I probably think might happen, and I'm no Web3 expert either, but it makes a lot of sense to pay direct. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one area I think that people will circumnavigate things like Google. Mm-hmm. You could just go straight to the company, pay a premium to um not pay a third party like Google to reach them. And that sponsorship model already works with like things like Netflix. So yeah. How do you, how do you think that'll go forward? Change maybe the ad policies and things? You no, know, I think for some people, they, how, how to put it? You've got the people who prioritize convenience and the people who prioritize other things. And so take Netflix as an example, it's kind of wild, but YouTube actually makes more money from advertising than Netflix makes from their entire subscription base, which is pretty wild given how much money Netflix makes as a company. But that tells me that people are still, you know, they're willing to put up with ads to watch free content or just to watch the content that is on YouTube that is not on Netflix. At the same time, you've got tons of people who are willing to pay the money directly to the provider and get access to that exclusive and non-ad content on Netflix. And you've got probably most people who who do both. You know, I've, I've got a Netflix subscription and I spend lots of time on YouTube because that there's different content on those different platforms that I want to engage with. And I don't think that the ad-supported um, model is going to go away anytime soon because it just it works well for a lot of people and they put up with the ads so they don't have to pay the monthly fee. Um, but there's still definite um, large swaths and segments of the population that do like that subscription model. And so I think there's, there's plenty of room for, for both in the ecosystem. Yeah. I love the subscription model. I love paying direct to the people who made the product and, you know, cutting out the arbitrator, Mm -hmm. but I'm also a big fan of an ad blocker. (laughs) So, you know, I've got a free browser brave with a free ad blocker. Mm -hmm. I like, how do you think things are going to go if that becomes mainstream? If people knew, you know, I see my dad sitting through ads and I'm kind of like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> but it makes sense. If you don't know about it, you don't know about it. Yeah. It's, it's that combination, I think, of, of functionality and, and awareness, like you said. So, A, it's a matter of let's, let's talk about competitors to, to Google or competitors to browsers. It's a matter of, are they as as good at getting the results that people expect to see as as Google, for example? But then B, and probably this is the bigger one, is that awareness. Google is so integrated in our lives in so many ways, from you know being the default search engine on browsers to having Gmail to you know, Google Drive to YouTube to just so many aspects of our life and where we're so integrated that there's definitely a, a cost, a convenience cost to switch to a different platform. 
And so you have people like yourself um, who are, I'll say, maybe more, more early adopters of things or maybe more privacy oriented and so forth, where they are happy to sacrifice some of those convenience costs and make that switch. And it's always a question, I think, of just how large a percentage of the population fall into that category, because I think that generally that percentage of the population is, is relatively small. You've got kind of the leading edge. You've got the people who, who were using Google back in the day before people knew what a search engine was. And there's always that, that leading cutting edge of people who are using the latest and greatest. And then you have the rest of the population slowly following behind as they kind of figure out those things. And as those companies are then able to, to create awareness of themselves and get out into the marketplace. So over time, you know, I, I think, um, Google should definitely be watching out for, for competitors. Um, but I think it's, it's also going to take a long time for people to, to switch away from what they've grown accustomed to. hundred percent. I mean, full disclosure. I mean, when I'm on DuckDuckGo, I'm often closing DuckDuckGo to go on Google because <laughs> it's just not working. Yep. Yeah. That's a real bummer. I was just going to say, yeah, that's one of those things too, where often it, it takes a while for new, let's let's talk about search engines. It just, it takes a while for them to, to get up to speed because going against a behemoth like Google, the decades that they've invested into learning the hundreds of billions of dollars invested, you know, it's going to take time for anybody else to, um, to, to get up to that kind of level of, of excellence. Yeah. I was going to ask about, um, I think the company's called Neva. They're like a, a search engine, but you pay a subscription to use it. And yeah, when you outline things like the decades of data that Google will have, it makes me feel a less confident about things like that. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's a very interesting model. I've, I'm familiar with the model. I haven't, um, I don't think I'm familiar with that specific one, but definitely I've read a lot about you know, the concept, both for search engines and many things on the internet of, well, will people pay for this in order to get rid of ads? Ultimately, I, I do think a lot of it comes down to that, that quality of, of the product and how are you going to make a product that can compete with, a, with the established players in the space. And often, I think what we've seen in history is the new winners, they're not necessarily the ones that, that beat, let's say, Google, that beat Google at their game. It's the ones that figure out where the internet is going. And you know, when search dies, the thing that replaces search, um, which I'm, I'm not saying search is dying anytime soon, but kind of drawing the parallels with you know, Google grew to where they were based upon a, a new idea, the internet, and having to figure out how to find information on the internet and collate that together and make it relevant and safe for people to browse. And the next Google is probably not going to be a better search engine than Google. It's going to be the next company that solves those present needs that people have based upon where technology and culture has evolved to and you know, makes Google obsolete because a search engine is no longer relevant. That makes a lot of sense. So do you think they'll kill search? What do you, what do you think about uh, I mean, I think I definitely, um, I'm not smart enough to, to tell you what will replace search. I mean, I think search just makes so much sense. It's going to be here for a long time. It's, you know, how do I find what I need? I want to search for it. Voice as an aspect of search. That's one area where, you know, exactly how search works has changed significantly. Um, used to be everything was typing into your computer. Then it mm. was typing into your computer or, you know, tap with your thumbs on your phone. Now, you know, voice search for what you're looking for. So the exact criteria of the technology changes over time, but ultimately we as humans need to find solutions and we're going to search for those in some way. Yeah. I mean, the thing that comes to mind when you said that was a neural link, instead of even speaking out loud, just thinking a concept and it appearing and helping you in that way. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I'm definitely um, no, no expert in understanding how, uh, how that is being built out or how that will work, but it's fascinating to, to watch for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I guess on the decentralized thing, do you think? What do you think about like tokenomics and uh, cryptocurrency in in the advertising space? So most of my exposure so far in the advertising space has been more dealing with policies from platforms about advertising, <laughs> because those policies yeah, sure. from Google and Facebook have uh, have scams. changed significantly over the years. Lots of scams they're trying to protect people from, absolutely, um, and just as they've been figuring out. You know, what does it mean? What are we comfortable with exposing our users to? 
used to be really couldn't do much. Now you can do some advertising, but you have to be very careful and get certificates and so forth and so on. So I spent a lot of time working with crypto advertisers on that policy side of things and figuring out how to um, you know, create awareness of their, of their products, whether that be software related to crypto or you know, actual cryptocurrencies themselves or things like you know, we have a client there, a crypto um, ATM with physical locations and helping people find those locations. Lots of really interesting different business models that all pertain to the, the crypto space. In terms of how crypto itself will impact advertising, I think that there, A, it's going to impact advertising in terms of how, um, how money changes hands, how programmatic advertising works with different platforms being able to um, you know, send contracts and say, hey, yes, this ad did show or didn't show. There's a lot of, I think, very interesting technical ways that crypto can impact that space. Um, I, I don't view myself as a crypto expert, so I, I can't tell you with much education how I think that will be rolled out. But it is something that I'm, I'm watching very closely um, and monitoring to see what impact that will have on kind of the infrastructure that that pertains to the advertising that we run for our clients and the platforms that we work with. Yeah, just with the platforms you work with, that's kind of interesting where you're writing your own metrics because you don't want to be going, oh, you're a crypto company, sounds cool. Let's pump it out there. And then Google's going to go, well, these guys are actually just a pump and dump scheme. Right. So, so you have to kind of step into the quality control of it. Yeah, we have to certainly quality control you know, who we work with. And then also we have to make sure that they're abiding by Google's policies that are usually very strict about what you can say and you know what information you have to have about your legitimacy and credibility and safety measures and certifications and all that good stuff. Uh, because Google and Facebook and the platforms, again, they, they want to protect their users. They want the way that they continue to make money is by users trusting that they're going to be safe when they search for something or Google or when they click on a Facebook ad. And so they are highly incentivized as platforms to not give the benefit of, of the doubt to new uh, to new advertisers and to put the burden of proof and legitimacy on those on those advertisers or the agencies working with them. Yeah, it's kind of a buzzy one because the crypto idea is to you know be transparent, be decentralized, peer to peer. But uh, it's it is a shame that it's kind of um, smattered with lots of scams. Yeah, I think that's that's the reality of. Pretty much any any new technology that that comes out, there's usually that that period of figuring out what are the the rules and regulations going to look like in that space. And we saw that certainly with the internet when it came out. Not that there are no longer any scams on the internet because that's yeah. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> but you know, standards being put in place to try and protect people um, from from scams uh, is definitely a safer. You know, it's a safer place to be now than it was uh, back in the early days. Yeah, totally. Small pivot here. Just with the crypto in general, um, I just made a video for uh, e-commerce businesses payment processes because it it is fascinating to me. Um, I work in New Zealand, and it takes me about eight days to get paid by the U.S. company that I work for to beautify. Mm -hmm. But with you know Bitcoin on the Lightning Network, it can take ten minutes. Do you have any ideas around like your company, Stubgroup, accepting crypto? Uh, and how maybe that will change things just with that speed element and maybe other elements as well. Yeah, in terms of you know, Stubborn as a company accepting it from our clients, it's not a not a road we've gone down through uh, through yet. Primarily related to just the uh, you know, the volatility, obviously, that goes with with those payment methods. In terms of our clients, I have not yet seen any of our clients really strongly explore accepting crypto. Um, they definitely are always looking for you know, ways to make it as easy as possible for people to purchase through their websites and, you know, figuring out the payment processors or options or having as many options as possible for people to work with. But frankly, I haven't, I just haven't really seen a strong push yet from our clients, even asking us about it or, or digging into accepting crypto at, at this point. I think, I think adoption across the board is still a ways out. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. The volatility is, uh, is kind of insane. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting to watch the the roller coaster up and down. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's real a little, interesting. A little scary if, if you're counting on that for your money. Yeah, yeah, uh, it is a little scary. Not counting on it, but uh, definitely counting on it. And all the same. Well, I've just uh, checked, and we've um, we've hit this for about fifty minutes. I wanted to just check in. Is there anything that you would want to talk about, or anything that I've missed that you'd like to have a yarn about? 
you know, I think it's been a, a very um, wide ranging conversation, which I've loved getting on to lots of different different aspects of things. I think for those who are um, listening to this conversation or watching this conversation, if you are in the business space, um, or if you are thinking about starting a business, I would love to have my team chat with you, honestly, about about what you're doing and see if there are ways that we could assist you with either getting up and started or improving campaigns you're already running. And that's something that we do for really anybody who reaches out to us. We have a free conversation where we'll sit down and figure out, okay, what are your pain points as a business? What are your, what are your goals? How are you going to measure and define success? And put our heads together and see if there are ways that we can help you um, reach those success metrics. So if you would uh, you know, be interested in that type of conversation, you can reach out through our website, which is stubgroup.com. And we'd love to, uh, to have that chat. Do you work with companies in New Zealand? We do, actually. Yes. Oh, yeah, I am yeah. nice. talking in about three hours with a client in New Zealand. <laughs> so, oh, beautiful. What's, what's, the, what's the business? Uh, they're in the financial space, kind of the loan, loan finance space. Cool, cool. Yeah, I have to say... Um, conversation with you today you, you're very eloquent oh thank Full you stop. yeah yeah <laughs> I appreciate that. as somebody you know a certain amount of hours every week i spend learning about um advertising and i'm yet to be convinced until this conversation about the individual versus the uh the agency but yeah it just makes a lot of sense um picking somebody like stuff group up it's a good good move i think maybe in maybe in five years i'll hit you up all right look forward to it <laughs> yeah, yeah sounds good Okay, so yeah, um, people can find you at stubgroup.com. Anywhere else you'd like to point people or um... check out you know, LinkedIn, John Horn on there, Twitter um, at John Horn SG. Try to post interesting, uh, interesting insights from our clients and industry news there. And uh, our blog as well on stubgroup.com. You can find lots of, lots of great info. True. Okay. Yeah, I'll check it out too. One last thing, I guess, before you go. If you had advice for your 25 year old self, you know, what, what, would you, what would you say? Look at the big picture more frequently. It's really easy, especially if you're running a business and you're dealing with the fires and problems that come up every single day to get stuck in those weeds and be trying to do your best in those weeds and you know solve all the problems, fix all the things. But something that my mentors, people I've worked with in the past have helped me do is, is try and take a step back and look at the big picture and think through, okay, are there categorically ways that I can solve all these problems I'm dealing with by whatever, by hiring someone, by firing a client, you know, by taking bigger picture steps, but then put the, the company in a better position long-term to be successful for our clients. And at the same time, just from a, let's say an emotional perspective, that whole roller coaster ups and downs, when you can take a, take a step back, look at the overall trajectory of your business, your goals, kind of look at that bigger picture. It can be very helpful to uh, avoid some of those down the dumps days where it feels like oh, everything is we're terrible. We're failing. Um, every client has a problem. And no, it's like, hey, yesterday was great. Tomorrow can be great. Just you know, keep keep steady. Keep plugging away. Keep doing your best. Awesome advice. Yeah, that's very very helpful. Thank you for that. Okay, thanks, John. Um, that was a really great conversation. Thanks so much for being uh, easy to talk to and very helpful. Thank you so much for the very insightful questions, Connor, and conversation. Really appreciate it. Hey, no worries. Thanks for having us. And uh, thanks for coming onto the show. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Debutify Podcast. If you want to be part of the show, just email us podcast at debutify.com or head over to debutify.com to learn more. Have a great day and good luck with everything.